I am now joined by Liz Simi, co-founder of Honey Tree Investment Management, who just a couple of weeks ago, they launched their first ETF. It's the Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF. This has a great ticker symbol, Bees, B-E-E-Z. And I'm just telling you, you're going to be hard-pressed to find someone more passionate and knowledgeable around the topic of ESG investing than Liz, who is now on the line with me from Toronto. Liz, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Nate. Great to uh, chat again. Well, first, uh, congratulations on the ETF. I always love seeing new ETF issuers come to market, and I know you've had this uh, in the works for a while now. And I actually thought before we get into the ETF itself and obviously a, a discussion around ESG, would you mind talking a little bit just about the process of bringing a new ETF to market? Just just this journey from sort of the idea to the actual inception of the ETF. I thought that might be an interesting place for us to start. Sure. Um, when we, we founded our firm in 2018, our, our goal was to always get our, our equity strategies into a vehicle. And, you know, if we were launching 10 or 20 years ago, that vehicle would have been a mutual fund. Um, but because of the way ETFs, especially active ETFs, have evolved and we'll call it um, adopted, have uh, been adopted um, uh, we, we had decided uh, many years ago that it was definitely going to be an ETF when we launched a vehicle, assuming it was our choice and not, you know, a sub-advisory relationship. So we've been working towards this for a while. We actually thought we'd have a Canadian vehicle uh, before a U.S. one. I, uh, both my co-founder and I have launched uh, Canadian ETFs, interestingly, in, in our previous lives. Um, but so, so we were always working towards this and, you know, learning about the, the U.S. market opportunities and the white label options um, and the growth of active ETFs and even ETF models um, that advisors use kind of kind of drove us towards getting this first ETF uh, off the ground. And obviously, our wonderful partners at ETF Architect. Um, played the majority of the role in getting this ETF launched. But, you know, our, our job is to, to, to design the investment strategy, figure out product market fit and, and who's going to buy an active ETF. Um, and so it's, it's been a, a bit of multi-year journey, but it's really about taking the, the existing strategies that we run that are not accessible to most advisors and retail investors and getting them in uh, a structure this ETF that they can then actually access and use. Just out of curiosity, for aspiring ETF entrepreneurs, of, of whom we have a number who listen to this podcast, um, any quick tips you might offer, things to do or, or not do? It sounds like, uh, obviously, you, you liked your experience with uh, the, the team over at Alpha Architect or ETF Architect on their white label side. A a any tips? Yeah, I mean... Uh your market um, at my old firm for example we 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 did end up launching structures and closing them not the ETFs I was talking about and so sometimes sometimes you you launch a product too early um, and and so just understanding who's gonna buy it how they're gonna buy it what platforms they're gonna buy it on simple distribution uh, aspects are just as important as the investment design and I think sometimes the investment design, or the, the idea behind the investment design uh, uh, takes over instead of understanding who's buying what and how and how they're building their portfolios around it. So that would just be my suggestion before 
um, spending a bunch of money to, to launch a vehicle. Okay, so let's talk about the ETF itself. Again, the Honey Tree U.S. Equity ETF, uh, which, as you noted, this is actively managed by you. I, I should have uh, mentioned that at the top. You're the portfolio manager, if that uh, wasn't obvious. But this ETF, uh, it's concentrated. You're focusing on responsible growth. Just take us from there. What's going on underneath the hood? So we run a quantumental process, which is a really fancy word. Um, that just means that we use both quantitative tools, fundamental in our active management. Um, and that means we're, we're stock pickers that use quantitative tools, essentially. Uh, and so what that looks like for, for our strategy is we start with the universe of U.S. stocks, and we use 25 qualification criteria, and those criteria are both financial and non-financial. And when I say non-financial, I mean ESG. Um, I don't use the term ESG too often because our the, the data that we use and the inputs we use um, don't fit nicely in the E, S, and G buckets. Um, they, you know, the, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of, tie, you know, a lot of the data tied to financials and stuff. So I, I would say financial and non-financial. So we have 25 qualification criteria. That's our quant process. And that takes us from the universe of U.S. stocks down to about 50 stocks in what we consider our consideration set. And I'll give you an example of qualifications. Those are, you know, $5 billion minimum market cap. If they have a dividend, it has to be growing. We use board diversity beyond gender. So since the beginning, we've been looking at racial diversity on equal footing as gender diversity. Um, and we have a lot of traditional ESG exclusions like weapons and fossil fuel and, and gambling and tobacco. And, and all those criteria get us down to what we consider a manageable universe or a manageable consideration set of 50 companies. And that's when we do our fundamental deep dive. And where we're unique, uh, uh, you know, and, and there, there's, there are lots of other firms that integrate ESG in their process, but we, we take, in our fundamental deep dive, we do what investors, active investors, would consider a traditional financial fundamental deep dive. But we bring in non-financial data equally throughout that process. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at growth alongside gender in leadership growth year over year and racial diversity in leadership year over year. And the reason we're, we're we can combine them and treat them equally is because they, the, to us, they're telling us the same thing. And that's, is this company responsibly growing? Is this company fundamentally, whether it's non-financial or financial, financially based, is this company going to continue to grow responsibly and sustainably over the long term? And we believe you could, you could kind of get there with just financials, but we believe these non-financial data points add a lot of color, and, and just to be super clear, they're quantitative and qualitative data points um, uh, on the, the non-financial side and the financial side, but, but we're, we're specifically trying to use this fundamental deep dive to, to figure out which of these, the, the 25 of the 50-ish companies that are responsibly growing um, that we believe based on the deep dive, they're going to continue that uh, sustainable, responsible, boring, to be super clear, growth rate. We're not looking for, you know, companies shooting, uh, shooting the moon or whatever. It, it's, it's, these are, these are companies that understand that they're stakeholders. So their employees, their customers, the local community, 
the environment, and even their shareholders, um, they understand that the impact they make on those stakeholders is what drives their bottom line. And so they have to consider all their stakeholders in their long-term growth planning and processes and in their operations. Um, and, and we see, you know, uh, a company, uh, uh, you know, I'll give you, I'll give you some examples. You know, there's a lot of tech companies that say that they care about diversity, but they aren't able to move the, and, and asset management and investing too, but they aren't able to move the needle on, let's say, women in leadership year over year. But then you have industrial companies or, or retailers who, who have, who have figured out operationally that if they increase in leadership roles, they're building their their talent pool. They're building their capacity to hire higher quality leaders because that talent pool is bigger. And so they're growing gender and leadership year over year, not because it looks good on an ESG score, but because it actually enhances their business and enhances their bottom line. Um, and so we're looking at a bunch of different metrics, um, you know, and just to, to give you an idea on the ESG side, since I know your listeners are not, as, as, as we'll call it, as e, this is not an ESG podcast. You know, we look at emissions data year over year and water use year over year. Um, we look at parental leave. You know, if you have a company and you're offering parental leave and none of the men are taking it, you're potentially having a higher turnover of women who are taking parental leave. And so if you can increase all of your parents taking leave to hang out with their kids, you may in fact be saving money and increasing retention long-term of all the professionals you've gone out to hire. And so, you know, just like you would look at debt capacity and managing, uh, you know, business responsibly, we think of these things as managing a business responsibly. And that's why we're able to integrate them equally in our fundamental deep dive. Liz, with that, non-financial data, or I'll call it ESG data that you're using, where, where do you source this or how do you source this? Because I, I know this is always sort of a controversial topic around ESG, just that you have these uh, rating agencies out there that will be all over the board on how they rate ESG factors of, of really the exact same companies. And, and so how do you approach the underlying data here? So I was raised in a in a U.S. equity shop that publicly available data and didn't meet managers and certainly didn't use external uh, research. And so we take a very similar approach. And we're pretty lucky. When, by the time we started, uh, a lot of the leading companies were reporting a pretty robust set of ESG data. And what I found very interesting starting this firm is we could not buy that data from ESG data suppliers because only 20 30% of the index was reporting it. Now it's, it's, it's much better and the more members of various indices are reporting the data. And so you can buy it in better depth, but we mainly use primary source company reported data. And we believe most of the data that we're using is what's going to end up being required in financial statements in the next five to 10 years. And to give you an example, um, you know, the SEC is coming out with uh, environmental disclosure requirements. Um, uh, related to emissions specifically. And so emissions reporting will become mandatory. Um, and with that will come uh, all the other environmental you know, inputs and outputs that get reported and standardized in this process. Um, and on the, 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 the workforce side, I like to call it, the, the S, as, as folks will call it, 
Um, we look at mainly, you know, the Department of Labor diversity data. Um, and, and with that and as that evolves, we're going to have pay equity data, turnover data. You know, we have employee safety data and things like that. And so while we're using mainly company reported, uh, you know, company fundamental data on the, the ESG side, uh, a lot of the companies in our portfolio are actually getting a chunk of that data externally um, assured and verified. And, and so we're in the transition period right now where the accountants are beginning to take over the auditing and the verification of ESG data. And so I always push back when folks think it's all over the place and not standardized. Because when you look at the companies that, that, that we're researching, they're all using the same format of reporting. And we can get pretty standardized and quantified data across, you know, uh, a bunch of, uh, of the metrics. And to be super clear, we use a lot of qualitative research in our process. Um, but that being said, you know, you, you, how do you compare qualitative data about companies? You have to standardize it in some way. So um, we do use some external, uh, uh, not ESG ratings, but there's certain, uh, uh, you know, uh, interesting, you know, Glassdoor, for example, uh, uh, other, other source data points that we use in our process. But it is mainly, just like financials, it is mainly company-reported uh, primary source data. Well, let me ask you though. So, if that data is becoming more standardized, and, and and going back to your ETF, which by the way, let me caveat this by saying I'm not looking for a debate here. I, I just would love to have you uh, articulate your views around a topic that I know we discussed last time uh, you were on, which is the value of running an active ESG strategy. And you may recall, and I'm sure you still disagree with me on this. Uh, my view is that I believe active managers who set market prices, uh, that they're paying attention to all of the uh, risks and opportunities involved with a company, including, uh, quote-unquote, ESG factors or or this non-financial data. I would say that's their job. I I just don't see why any good active manager would ignore meaningful risks or opportunities. And and so I, I guess my question is, like, from a performance perspective, how do you generate alpha in this space? So I'm, it's funny, I've only ever lived in active management and I'm, I'm kind of active management's biggest critic. Um, and not because active management is bad unto itself, but what happens a lot is human bias gets in the way. Um, and what that, I, I believe that is, is evidence, the evidence of that is index hugging. Um, which is not an ESG issue, it's an active issue that, that spreads over to ESG. So, I, I would agree with you partially. I think fundamental stock picker over history um, would be looking at what is considered an ESG risk, even if it was not formally within an ESG bucket. That being said, I think the, the evidence is there that uh, a larger a non-minority chunk of active managers preferred to keep focus on financial, traditional fundamentals. And so that's how why ESG and ESG data, ESG research and ESG ratings ended up being separate. Not part of traditional financial packages, not part of traditional financial research, not researched by the same team often. 
And so while while we definitely could find evidence of portfolio managers looking at things like high turnover, um, you know, toxic culture, uh, you know, EPA fines, and, and, and I'm sure there, there's many of those things. There's there's a belief, there's traditional belief in in finance theory and in our models that 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 shareholders return is the goal of a company. And so, you know, what, what, what I like to say is, is stakeholder return and stakeholder governance is the goal of a company and the companies that we hold. And so there's a bunch of paradigms going on here that, that limit traditional portfolio managers' ability to use some of this ESG data in their model. So 100% a bunch are and always have, um, just like a, a whole bunch of companies who don't believe in ESG or don't have sustainable sustainability reports execute on ESG, like reducing employer, improving employee safety or saving money on waste disposal. Just because it's not labeled as ESG doesn't mean it's not. And that's, you know, why I, 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 I complain online lots is the idea that there's ESG stuff on one side and financial stuff on the other is just not true. Everything's much more mixed up than it is. And in order to make uh, fully understood investment decisions, one needs to to uh, adjust and optimize models to consider uh, broader impacts and their future negative consequences or positive consequences in portfolio management. So I, I kind of half agree with you, but I, what the evidence I see in the industry is that the, uh, the maybe the louder chunk of active, active models in the world um, uh, ha- have managed to avoid considering ESG stuff at the at the the level that they hopefully will um, down the line. Liz, just about a minute left here, uh, and I'm going to give you a very challenging question to, to put a bow around in, in just a minute. But I think it's been about two and a half years since you and I last chatted on this podcast, and. From my perspective, a lot has changed with ESG. It felt like a few years ago, the largest asset managers were all trying to uh, shove ESG, or at least their definition of ESG, down investors' throats. And then last year, there seemed to be a lot more political polarization around ESG. And so no surprise, we saw many of those same asset managers retreat from the space, right? They didn't want to be caught up in that. And so... Just as you look ahead to the future of, of ESG, what what is this going to look like? And, again, I know that's a loaded question, but if you could try to boil that down, what, what does the future look like here? Um, I'm very optimistic. Uh, I like what the SEC is doing um, with regards to a lot of these asset managers that you've mentioned. Um, asset manager does not need to use ESG data in their research. Um, but if they're going to claim to use ESG data in their research, they should be using it as they, they claim to do. And we've seen the SEC come out and find um, a number, a non-small number of these leading ESG managers for uh, making unsubstantiated claims about how much or what they use in terms of ESG. So I'm as, as the, the ESG data gets standardized in financials, as fund managers are required to um, not make broad claims about ESG that they can't substantiate. Um, and that's happening up here in Canada, too, as it should, right? You know, you, you shouldn't be able to claim that on financial data and research. Why should you be able to claim it on ESG? Um, I don't think the end customer of ESG has been impacted negatively 
by the anti-ESG rhetoric. I think the end ESG customer has been impacted negatively by asset managers faking ESG and overstating their ESG claims. And so the retreat in that, I think, is a good thing. Well, Liz, we're going to have to leave it there. Really enjoyed reconnecting. Congratulations on the uh, launch. Certainly wish you all the success. So best of luck, and thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Liz Simi, co-founder of Honeytree Investment Management.